podcast listeners. For this week's episode of the Everyday Ministry Podcast, we have a special treat for you. We'll be listening to a recent sermon preached by Pastor James White regarding Ephesians chapter 2. We pray that this sermon will be uplifting and challenging to you as you go about your week. And happy ministry. Sarah and I, actually, uh, actually to start off with, let me ask you this. Uh, raise your hand if you, at this time, or have had a young child in your house. Come on. Is that it? All right, so for some of you, I know it may have been a little bit longer than others, than maybe grandkids and things of the such. Um, but as you already know, Sarah and I have Lottie, which is eight months today, and uh, so Sarah and I, after church this morning, we uh, took the opportunity, we drove over to Columbus and ate lunch, and uh, Sarah went into Walmart and got some groceries, and um, I was sitting in the car with Lottie, and um, so Lottie got a little fussy, I'm holding her, and then I, I, I looked down to realize that Lottie had um, ch- chosen to relieve herself slightly while she was in my lap, and she did on my pants leg here. And so I, I get out of the car. Let me let me show y'all over here, okay? Don't look at this little spot there. And um, and so I get out of the car. I change her diaper, and I then uh, had to do something with the residue. And so uh, I decided to clean it with a, a baby wipe. And apparently, whatever material these baby these pants are made out of are not baby wipe proof. And so therefore, it looks like a bleach stain on these pants. And so probably ruined these. Uh, but I wanted to get ahead of, ahead of it because even though I'm behind the pulpit here, you may see me at some point tonight, and I wanted you to know what was going on there. Um, and so, um, so yes, um, that's I guess what I get for making fun of Sarah this morning because she had a similar issue with Lottie, and uh, I guess it's payback. So um, now that has nothing to do with this evening's sermon. Uh, just a funny story of my life that. Uh, decided to share with you all and so uh, but if you have small kids you know exactly what I went through in that moment Uh, if you don't have it and you will have kids at some point in your life you'll know then and so this morning uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 is where we're going to be spending our time but I want to take the opportunity to pray uh, before we even get into any scripture dear heavenly father we come now and we thank you so much for The word that we have built every part of this day upon so far, from the scriptural reading to the preaching to the Sunday school to small groups, Father, this evening. God, we thank you for your word is what we trust and depend on above all else. It is how you communicate with us. It is how you speak to us. And Father, it is how you teach and grow and develop us to be the men and the women that you're calling each and every one of us to be. And so now as we approach it, God, I pray we approach it humbly. But God, we also approach it in such a way that we're seeking what you have for us in it. God, in that same vein, God, take and just remove me and place me behind it, Father. Let the words I say be words that express it and it alone. We love you. We thank you. And we just praise you for the opportunity to gather again tonight in your name. In your son's perfect and holy name. Amen. 
So this evening, as we are going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, I do want to look at John 11 first. We're going to be looking at 38 through 44 specifically there. Um, but before I get there, and if you're already there, you're kind of going to get ahead of me a little bit. But if I, if I ask you the question this evening, what was your favorite miracle or sign? Or what was the most amazing miracle and sign that Jesus performed? What would some of your responses be? Now, you can talk a little bit if you'd like to respond. It's okay. What are some things that just that Jesus did while he was on this earth that was just amazing to you? What would the greatest one be in your in your thought process? Raising Lazarus from the dead. Anybody else? Feeding the five thousand. He did some pretty amazing things, right? I mean, uh, we we as we as a church, you've been walking through John, so you've seen some very specific ways in which Jesus did uh, some of these amazing things. We see that he walks on water. He feeds the multitude. Uh, we see that he heals a lame man that had been lame from birth, that he heals a blind man that was born from birth, which is a big sign of the Messiah that was to come because no one else had ever done that. But I think most of us would land in a very similar place that one of the most amazing things to us is that Jesus would have the power and the ability to take what was once dead and give it life again. Now, I, 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 I agree. That's kind of, for me, that's the most amazing thing. Though it shouldn't be because really we see that he is the one that gave life in the first place. But I agree completely that that is the most amazing sign that we see in his earthly ministry. And so let's look at it. In John 11, verses 38 through 44. And I know Caleb's preached through this, uh, but that's probably been like six months ago at this point. So uh, let's just visit it very briefly right now. 38. It says, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there would be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When you had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen stripes and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Now, what's so amazing about this to me is that once again, as we looked at this morning, nothing is a coincidence and nothing surprises Jesus. Right. And so he is sovereign over this circumstance. He knows exactly what's going to unfold when Jesus approached this tomb. Uh, and we see that in earlier in John 11, when when they send news to Jesus that their brother Lazarus was ill. That he was deathly ill, that he had fallen sick, and they wanted Jesus to come and to take care of him, and to save him, to, to give him a, a healing that would prevent him from dying. And so it says that Jesus loved Lazarus and his family so much that he stayed in that place for a few more days. Now, it doesn't seem like love necessarily, but Jesus later begins to talk to his disciples and, and, and discuss with them that they were going to go, they were going to raise Lazarus, they were going to wake him up. And they didn't quite understand what Jesus was getting at there. And so um, he then plainly tells them, Lazarus is dead. Now, he, he doesn't only say Lazarus is dead. He says, Lazarus is dead and I am glad he's dead for your sake. 
And what's so amazing about that is in that moment, we get a glimpse into what the disciples didn't understand. We get a glimpse into the fact that Jesus was sovereign over the circumstance. And what he was about to do was to perform this miracle and this sign so that people would then believe in him being the Messiah. And so what he does is he goes and he raises Lazarus from the dead. But before he does, before we get even to verse 38, we see that Jesus weeps at the sign of the effect of sin. So once again, he's not only sovereign, but he's compassionate for those whom he loves. Right. And so Jesus weeps over the effects of sin. And in that he stands before this grave, not only saddened, but as a saddened savior that has power over death. And what does he say? Lazarus, come out. And what does Lazarus do? Exactly what Jesus told him to do. And that was he came out of the grave. Now, I'm going to say it this way. This is simple but amazing. Now, to you, it may not seem simple. To me, it may not be simple. Because we don't understand. We can't comprehend how this is even possible. But it's simple in the fact that all Jesus said was, Lazarus, come out. And he came out. He didn't go in there. He didn't perform CPR. He didn't do none of this. And this is a man that had been dead for four days. And so it's simple in the sense that all Jesus had to do was speak. And when he spoke, things that should not listen, listened. And we think of this miracle as such an amazing sign of the power of Christ. And we rightly do so because it is an amazing thing in which Christ did in raising Lazarus from the dead. But what we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 2 is that this is the same miracle in which Jesus does each and every day. This is the same miracle that we as a church have had the opportunity to see in seven individuals' life in the last two months. This is the same miracle that we should be encouraged by and strengthened by and to go out and to seek the same thing in the life of those around us. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of the wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, what we see going on in this text, and really to understand it rightly, we need to look back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, which says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul is writing this letter to this church that is in Ephesus. 
Now, what's so important about understanding that is this word that we see in his explanation of who he is writing to. And he says, to these saints. Now, we don't address one another like this. I don't walk up to Sam or I don't walk up to um, anyone else in this church and say, Saint so-and-so, right? We don't address one another like that. We may say brother, we may say sister, depending on our, our circumstances. But we don't address one another as saint. But well, we understand what that means. That means that he's talking about the believers in Ephesus. So um, Paul is writing this letter to this church that is made up of believers. Now, that makes sense. That's common knowledge, right? That Paul is writing to a bunch of believers. He's writing to a group of individuals that have believed and trust in Christ. Why that's so significant as we look at this text this morning, or this evening, is that what we see is that Paul is writing to this group of believers and he's reminding them of something. That's why I want to emphasize that he's writing to people that already know Jesus. Because when we read chapter 2, it just says, and you were. So Paul is writing to a group of individuals that know Jesus and he's telling them some specific things and to bring to mind some things that should encourage them and build them up. And what he really, really, what he really is saying here is that they were once dead in their sins, that they were delivered by the work of God, that their deliverance is their motivation, what their calling is, and that their deliverer is the one that they're dependent upon to do the work. And really what we're going to see in that is the same principles for us, is we're going to see our origin story, we're going to see our deliverance, our motivation, our calling, and our dependence. And as we approach this, that's how I want us to look at this. And so we're going to first foremost look at verses 1 through 3. And what we're going to see in this is our origin story, where our beginning was. And I want to make it clear here, and I, I know I've already made this clear, but I want to make it just completely clear. That if, when I say our origin, what I'm talking about is people that have trusted in Christ. That if you're here and you have laid your faith at the foot of Christ and trusted Him above all else for your salvation and trusted in Him and nothing else, then this is you. That you will want this. Now if you're here and you've never done that. This is an amazing thing for you to hear. Because this is what Christ can do for you. And so as we approach this. Let's understand that as I say are or we or anything of that nature. I'm talking about those that have trusted in Christ. And so let's look at it. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now I want to begin by looking at this word dead. Now it's so significant. And it's also one reason why I also look at John chapter 11 to look at the raising of Lazarus. Because what we understand about Lazarus is though he's physically dead, Paul is talking about something slightly different. He's talking about our spiritual life. He's not talking about a physical death necessarily yet, but a spiritual life that we have died to our sins, that we're died in our sins. Therefore, we're not deserving of God's mercy and grace. Now, let me ask you a very, very simple question, and you don't have to respond, but if you want to, you can, is what can somebody dead do? Nothing. Just like Lazarus, while he was in the tomb, there was nothing in him that would raise him from that death. There was no uh, innate ability that would bring him from death unto life. Just like us as spiritual individuals, that we are dead in our sins. We're dead in our trespasses. That's why Paul uses this word clearly here. He doesn't say you're sick or you're, you're ill or you're uh, in a coma or anything of that nature. He uses this word dead, meaning that you're dead in your sins. That you're without hope. You're without any way to save yourself. So often when we uh, approach a scripture like this or we approach the idea of being dead in our trespasses and dead in our sins, we hear individuals explain it by talking about somebody that is drowning. 
And really what they say is that this idea of drowning, that there's an individual, that if they're in their sin and they're in the world and they don't know Jesus, they're drowning in the ocean. And they're drowning in the ocean and they are almost dead. They are almost lost their last breath and their hand is reached up and they're waiting for somebody to grab them. But what Paul is really saying here isn't that. What Paul is saying here is that before you come to Christ, you were dead at the bottom of the ocean. That you were without any life in you, without any air left in you, and you were sunk into the bottom. And Jesus, what he did was he jumped off the boat, swam all the way down, picked you up, brought you back to life, brought you back to the, the shore, breathed new life into you, and brought you back to life. That is where we once were. While that is so significant, it's because why were we dead though? Why were we dead in our sins? Because we were dead in our sins because our sins deserved us the wrath of God. Our sins is what caused the wrath of God to be on our lives. And that's what we were deserving of. Because we were just like the rest of mankind deserving of that. Because God is perfect. God is holy. God is without error. So therefore he cannot be with that that is sinful. And so we were deserving the wrath of God because he is a righteous and just God that cannot leave the guilty unpunished. But God, we're going to get there. But God, we're going to, this is an amazing thing. But what we see is that in this idea, though, is the rest of mankind. That's so significant for us as believers now to understand. But we see this in Romans 5.12 and Romans 5.19. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. Then verse 19, for by, for as all for as by the one man's disobedience, the man were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the man were made righteous. So we're going to get to that righteousness in a moment. But what we see in Romans in this idea here is that sin came into the world through one man's disobedience. And because of that, sin has been uh, imputed to all of us that we are all sinful creatures now. Not just because Adam did it, though. Not just because Adam and Eve took it and disobeyed God in the garden many, many years ago. But we're sinful also because we choose to be sinful. We're also sinful because this is something that we rightly, we wrongly choose to do each and every day of our lives. And so when we look at this and what we should understand in this is what Paul is under explaining to this church in Ephesus is that they were once dead in their trespasses and sins. That they were at the bottom of that ocean, lifeless, without hope. See, that's where you get to verses 4 through 7. See, but that first part, that's our origin. And I want to remind us of that for, for a few reasons, really. It's one, because just that, that individual that we see in the community around us or we see on TV or whatever the case may be that has that sin that just bothers us and we think that they should be acting differently or better, that was once us. We were that sinful individual that needed a savior. And so often we as believers lose sight of what we once were. So what was done for us is our deliverance, which we found in verses four through seven it says, but God. I've talked about that word, but so many times already. Uh, I've done that in every sermon I've preached here, probably. And I've done it almost in every Bible study I've talked with the youth. So I'm not going to go in depth. But that's a powerful and amazing word because it means something good is coming next. Right. In this context, it means something great is coming next. But it says, but God, 
That, that second word, God, is what we have to emphasize here is because it had to be God. It had to be God that did something for us because any other way would not suffice. Any other way would not bring us salvation. Any other way would not bring us hope. So we were dead in our sins, but God intervened. How did God intervene, though? We see that he specifically says with mercy and great love. Now, what is merciful about God? Is found in John 1 1 and John 1 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Mercy essentially is that God Himself stepped out of heaven and took on flesh for us. That is mercy. God did not have to do that. God did not even have to think about doing that. But he did anyway. Because he is a merciful and loving God that is seeking his glory above all else. But also to show us in which the love that he has for us. So God being great in mercy stepped out of heaven for our namesake. And ultimately for his namesake above all else. So what we see though is that not only is he merciful but his great love. What great love does Jesus have for us? What great love does the Father have for us? And this is a very cliche one to use, but I think it's so perfect as we try to understand the great love in which the Father has for us. It's John three sixteen through 18. For God so loved the world. right? So God loved us so much, loved His people so much, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. This is the great love in which God loved us. That even though as we're going to see next in this verse is dead. Paul reminds the people again that this, were they, this is where they were. That they were dead in their sins. That God did not have to show this mercy. God did not have to show this love. But He did anyway. Even in their deadness. Even in their rebellion. Even in turning away from them. God showed this great love and mercy towards us. And what did He do? The last part it says, And raised us up with Him. And seated us with heavenly places. Colossians 2.12. When we specifically think about what God has done in the last few months here at Spring Hill. Colossians 2.12 comes to mind. Because this is something we're going to have the joy and the privilege of seeing for the next few weeks. Having been buried with him in baptism. Which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Who raised him from the dead. That because we have trusted and put our faith in Jesus, we are being raised again with him. The same God that raised Jesus from the dead, the same God that raised Lazarus from the dead, is the God that raises us from spiritual life unto uh, spiritual death unto life. And so as we look at this, we see this amazing work of God in our lives. That our origin story was one that was not great, is one that is ugly, and one that was deserving of exactly where we were and that was dead. But God, being rich in mercy and with his great love, decided to do something different for us. And that was sending his only son into the world to die for us so that whoever would believe and trust in him would have eternal life in him. Being taken from death unto life. 
just like he did for Lazarus. Now what I want to really land on this evening, it's found in verses 8 and 9. As we read it, it's going to sound very similar to what we've already addressed, but it's something that's so important. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And my focus here, though, is that this is something that Paul is reiterating to the people. He's already told this to them one time before, and he's coming back to it. There's a lot of reasons why he could be coming back to it. But one of the main reasons I think he's coming back to it is because now as believers, this is our motivation. This is what motivates us to do what God is going to be calling us to do as individuals. And so as we look at this, this is our motivation. What is our motivation then? Well, we see three key words here is grace, faith and gift. That our motivation is that God showed us his grace when we did not have to. That we cannot save ourselves and we could not and we did not save ourselves. So therefore, we are motivated to do the work of God because God has redeemed and saved us. It's so significant because we don't work to save ourselves. We don't work to bring any kind of merit into our salvation. We do this work in which God is calling us to. Simply because God has already saved us. He has already gave us grace and he's done it through the faith in which we have placed in Christ Jesus. And this is a gift of God in our lives. And because it is a gift of God in our lives, it should be the motivation in which we put everything through the lens of. No matter what we are doing in our lives, it should be what motivates us to seek God's will above all else. In verse 10. I'm going to split verse 10 into two different things. The first thing is our calling. It says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, so often when we preach Ephesians chapter 2, people would stop and kind of just ignore that part slightly because they want to focus on the salvatic message, the gospel which is there. And that is there. That is clearly there. But Paul, once again, as I said earlier, is talking to believers. So he's not only reminding them of their origin and what God has done for them, but he's also calling them to something. And what he's calling us to is to work in the good works in which God, as we're going to see, is prepared for us. So what are those good works? Because he doesn't spell it out for us. He doesn't tell us what these good works are, but what are some good works? When we think of Scripture, what are some good works that we are called to do as individuals? Well, I've chopped it up to three things. Um, minister to God minister to one another, and then minister to the world around us. Now, we don't necessarily like the, the wording of minister to God because it, it doesn't sound right, but the reality is still there. And it's Matthew twenty two twenty seven through 28, which is simple. And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and this is the great and first commandment. This is what we all know to be true. This is what we are called to do as individuals. It's first and foremost to love God with all that we are. Now, how do we accomplish that, though? So often we, we hear these things. Love God, love one another, love your neighbor. But how do we accomplish this? Well, loving God is something that we cannot do perfectly. It is something that we're going to continue to find new ways to do that in our lives today. But as individuals, the first and primary way that we love God and we kind of express our love to Him is found in 1 Corinthians 10.31. And this is something you hear a lot as a congregation. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. One of the number one ways as individuals, as someone that is thinking of just yourself in just this one moment, expresses your love to the Father is simply seeking His will above all else. And seeking to live for Him in everything that you do. But my thought process goes deeper than that. 
is how do we accomplish this as a church? How do we accomplish this as a corporate body of believers? Because we're not saved unto individualism. We're not saved into only our salvation. We're saved into the salvation of the body of believers. So how do we accomplish this together? Well, one of the number one reasons that we gather together on the Lord's Day is to worship Him. And we accomplish this in many facets that we see week in and week out. And some of them we only see on occasions. The number one thing that we see is that we have these things that we're called to do in worshiping God. And they're pretty simple. Prayer. We're called to corporately pray together in a mindset of worship. We're called to read Scripture together. And I'm not talking about just the preaching of the Word of God that's being read, but just the reading of Scripture as a whole. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. We're called to worship through the preaching of God's Word. Now, what's interesting about that, and Caleb highlighted this before, is that not every one of us get to worship through the preaching of God's Word, right? Because generally there's only one person preaching at a time. And so the way the congregation responds in worship during the preaching of God's word is hearing God's word being preached and then applying it to their lives. We're also called to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together and encouraging one another in them. Some other ways in which we worship. And these are the things we may, may not see weekly, but we're called to do them corporately. And that is administration of baptism and administration of communion together. Thankfully, we got to experience the second one this morning, and it was a glorious thing for me. First time I've got to take communion together as a body of believers here at Springfield, and it was a great morning for me. I just want you to know that. And then next Sunday, we're going to gather together, and we're going to see baptism, and we're going to worship through that as well. It's going to be a great week, guys. I want you to know that already. But this is what we're called to do, is we're ministering or loving God with all that we are. We're called to do it individually and together. And these are just some ways to do it. There's many other ways in which we can accomplish these things, but these are some of them. What about ministering to one another? See, I think of John 13, 35. It says, By this, all people would know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, what's so significant about that is it just makes common sense. It just makes common sense that they would know that you're Jesus is by the way in which you love one another. And then also, practically speaking, for church growth and reaching the community, what better way of reaching the community be by than by being known as the church that loves one another? So often this is not what we hear about churches. So often we do not hear churches love one another. Quite frankly, we hear the opposite. But how do we love one another? And the joy is that this is also a day where we started to gather this evening in small groups and discuss things and build up one another in the word of God. But we're also called to serve one another, carry one another's burdens, forgive one another, encourage one another. See, in all reality, as a congregation, when we come together to build up what we call church, it's a bunch of sinful, broken, fallen creatures coming together to try to do something worthy to God. And so therefore, guess what we're going to need? We're going to need one another's help. We're going to need one another to carry our burdens. We're going to need one another to forgive each other. We're going to need to encourage one another because this is difficult. This is why we're not saved into individualism. This is why we're saved into a corporate body together. Because God has designed it this way so that we can live out the truth of his gospel together. The last thing is to minister to the world around us. We really see this in continuation of Matthew 22. It says that the second like is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So I distinguish these two of loving one another and loving your neighbor because we understand rightly that our neighbor is everyone. 
Our neighbors are not just those here at Spring Hill, but it is all believers and all unbelievers around and near us. So we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we really live this out in two ways. The first way is sharing the gospel with that person. Because in all reality, do you really love someone that does not know Jesus if you do not share the gospel with them? That's like taking someone that is ill and having the cure to that illness and not sharing it with them. Do you really love that person if that was the case? No. The same thing with the gospel. If we really love that individual that is our family member or our friend and they don't know Jesus, then we will share the gospel with them. But we also have to take it a step farther sometimes. And sometimes we have to do what we call mercy ministries. And that means meeting the needs of individuals. We see this in the life of Jesus, actually. We see as we read and thought, thought through some of his miracles that he heals the blind man, the deaf man, the demon possessed. He feeds the hungry. He does all of these amazing things to meet the physical needs of individuals. But he doesn't leave it there. He always calls them to repentance and calls them to himself. And so what we see in that is that we cannot separate these two sometimes. Sometimes we will only share the gospel and may not meet a need. But if we only meet a need and do not share the gospel, then we're no different than any other humane society out there. So we as individuals are called to love God with all that we are, love our neighbors as ourselves and love one another. And to really put this as simply as I know how, is what we're called to do as individuals is making much of Jesus And loving above all else. Which is what we see week in and week out on our bulletin, on our screens, on our sign outside. And it's what we're called to do as individuals. It's what we're called to do. But verse 10 does not stop there. It finishes it by saying, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, the beautiful thing about this is that in this reminder of Paul to the church of Ephesus. What he's telling them is, look, God is the one that saved and redeemed you. It wasn't by any work of yourself. It was only by my grace that you have placed your faith in me and in doing that you have been redeemed. The same God that saved us that way is the same God that's saving everyone else the same way. And so as we seek to do these things, as we seek to continue to do these things, then simply what we're called to do is trust that God is working before us and trust that He is the one doing the work in the lives of those around us. That is why when we pray for that member of your family that's lost or your loved one that's lost, what do you say? God, soften their heart. Because we're trusting in His ability to save them, not our ability to convince them otherwise. So this morning, this evening, once again, as we look at all of this, as we've approached the Word of God, as we've looked at all of this, my prayer is simply that as God calls you to Himself, that you would respond by crying out to Him. That's if for those individuals that are here, as I said earlier, you may be that person that I can't say we or are. That you may be that person that does not yet know Jesus. And my prayer is that you would. That you would cry out to Him. That you would seek His face above all else. But for us that are here and have trusted and believed in Christ above all else, I want to remind us of a few things before we dismiss. We were once and dead in our sins and trespasses. I want you to really understand this, is that you were once alienated and not a friend of God. 
You were once just like that heathen that you see in the street that is acting in a way that you disagree with. You were once that individual that comes into a church that does not look like church people. We must remember our salvation is in Christ and Christ alone, not of anything of ourselves. Because if we forget that, then we begin to put ourselves somewhere we should not. But we also should understand rightly that we have been delivered from death into life. So therefore we can't still live like we once did. God has redeemed and saved our souls for a reason and a purpose. And that is not to live like we always did beforehand. We're called out of that sin and out of that darkness for a purpose. Then also that we're called to work, not to save ourselves, but because God has already saved and redeemed us. If you're here and you're trying to work to save yourself, I would call you outside of that and rest in the work of Christ that was finished on the cross. Nextly, what we see is that we're called to love God, love one another, and love our neighbors. Very, 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 very difficult thing to do. But something that we trust in God to work in and of our lives. The last thing I want to remind us of is that in the last two months, God has redeemed and saved seven people or so. This is the miracle of Lazarus all over again. This is the dead man walking out of the grave with new life. This is something we should be excited and thrilled about. This is something we should celebrate and rejoice in. But as a church, it is also something we should take as a task upon ourselves to help them in their new life with Christ. We'd like to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Everyday Ministry Podcast where we seek to provide quality content first through our full-length episodes that release every first and third Monday of the month, and second, through the Minister's Minute. These are short 10 to 15-minute episodes that release every second and fourth Monday of the month in which one of our co-hosts will seek to answer a specific question related to everyday ministry. If you enjoyed today's episode, we encourage you to subscribe and rate the podcast through the podcast catcher of your choice. We can be found on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, and YouTube. Today we pray peace and grace for you through our Lord Jesus Christ, and happy ministry.